At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. We're in this series uh, on the Apostles' Creed. We're calling it The Essentials, how truth matters, why truth matters. And we have been taking our our time over the last uh, several months to go almost line by line through the Apostles' Creed so that we understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. These things are essential to our faith. And so if you, if you deny any one of the things that the Apostles' Creed claims, you're, you're not a Christian. You're outside of what uh, confessional Christianity truly is. And yet, many of us don't know what we actually believe. What does Christianity actually teach? And so that's one of the reasons we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed, to help us understand what is the core of what Christians believe, what's really the essential things that are true for us. And, and through this creed, we have confessed our faith in the one God who is eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've confessed our belief in the work of Jesus and coming as a human, suffering and dying in our place and being raised to life again on the third day. We've declared our affirmation of the one singular universal church, God's people from every time and every place and everywhere on the planet. But here at the conclusion of the creed, we're coming down to the end of it, there are some statements that deal with us specifically. They they turn and pivot from God and from who He is, and they they speak to our lives and who we are. Specifically, they deal with our need and our future. So next week, we'll conclude this series by looking at our future and what is the, the hope that we have. But first, we have to deal with our need. What is it that we we truly, deeply need resolved? And that is what the creed has been addressing all the way along. It's, it's really the whole statement of the Apostles' Creed pointing to this one reality that you and I need so desperately. Uh, the statement that we're looking at this morning is this. We profess, we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I think that might be the most personal and the most warm line in the entire creed. It is aimed right at our hearts. But it may be the one thing that we struggle to believe the most. Do you believe that Jesus forgives sins? That he he forgives your sin? Instead of answering that question by taking us to, you know, maybe the biblical laboratory, as it were, and taking the idea of forgiveness and and putting it on uh, an examination table and dissecting it like a frog, like we would a frog in biology class... I want us to see an example of forgiveness this morning. I want us to get kind of our hands dirty, if you will, with forgiveness. I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of some people that need forgiveness and ask ourselves the question, do I believe this? Is this true for me? I don't want the truth that we confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, just to be something that is intellectual, or something that's just up in our mind, I want us to embrace the forgiveness of sins at our very core. 
So we're going to this story in John 8, and it's, and it's an amazing story that says so much about our hearts, and, and we could just go right to it, but I, I want to just say something about this passage before we dive into the story itself and begin to look through what, what God is saying there. Although it's located here in our copy of the Scripture of the Bible, it's likely that John did not write this story. Uh, someone probably added it a little bit later. Now, here's why I know that. You'll see, if you have the English Standard Version there, uh, right at the beginning of chapter 8, there's a, in my Bible, there's a bracketed phrase, and it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11. You might go, wait a second, the oldest manuscripts of the Bible, the oldest copies of the Scripture don't have this passage in there? Nope, they don't. <laughs> you might ask the question, well, what are you doing preaching it? Like, why are you talking about this if this isn't in the oldest copies of the Bible? Well, it seems like this is a, a small little, what I'll call, postcard story that at some point, I think it's a true story, history uh, seems to back that up, it has reliability historically, but it probably wasn't written by John, and it may have been a story that the disciples, the apostles uh, shared with each other, they knew, they saw, they experienced, perhaps Luke or somebody else wrote it, but, but somebody decided along the way, let's put it here. Let's put it in this section of John's gospel. And so they just took the little postcard fragment and kind of slipped it in and, and give it to us. What this passage teaches does not contradict the rest of Scripture in any way. And that's one of the reasons why I, I believe we should affirm it. What, what's being taught here is true, and it is true to the whole of the Bible, and we should have full confidence in the, the truth of the Scripture. But it's most likely that somebody, uh, maybe a little bit later, slipped it in for us. The story has every suggestion of historical reliability, and I think it's worthy of our meditation and consideration. In fact, I think this story is a unique mirror in the Bible for our hearts. And, and the way I think about it is what we want to do with this story, whether we want to get rid of it out of our Bibles or whether we want to embrace it, may say something very deeply about our own hearts and what we believe should happen to sinners as well. You and I might be able to come to this story like the scribes and the Pharisees here, and we might demand its eradication. Like, get this story out of here. Like, it doesn't belong in the Bible. Let's let we try, so to speak, and kill it. Let's just, let's just tear it out. And that's one approach that we could take to, to this passage. Or we could refuse to condemn this story and embrace the heart of Jesus for sinners by accepting it and receiving it as Scripture. Because I believe that's what it is. So it's a mirror to our hearts. Even our grappling with what do we do with this is revealing something about what we believe should happen to things that don't belong, to people that don't belong, to sinners. Okay. Enough of the uh, caveat and the uh, expl explanation up front. This is scripture. What do we do with it? Let's dive into the story together. So Jesus, verse 2, is in the temple and he's teaching. And uh, the writer of this story tells us early in the morning, he came again to the temple. This was typical for Jesus when he was in the city of Jerusalem. He would go to the temple and he would teach. And he would uh, lay out. And he, and he came teaching as a rabbi, and the, the posture that a rabbi would take in his teaching was to sit down. So unlike me standing up here preaching and teaching from a pulpit, uh, teachers of that day would sit down in front of the congregation and begin to teach as, as a seat of authority and a, seat, uh, a position of leadership. And so Jesus is sitting there in the temple, and he's teaching. And as it were, 
a crowd grows. People come to hear what Jesus has to say, and he's teaching about the kingdom of God and leading that, and people are showing up. Now, all of a sudden, this other group, they descend upon where Jesus is at. They, they have some things to deal with him. This group of scribes and Pharisees appear. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were the experts in the law, or what we would consider the Old Testament scriptures. They know it backwards and forward, inside and out, upside down, right side up. They know the scriptures perfectly. They are legal experts in the law. And the Pharisees were the, the, if you were, legal enforcers of the law. They made sure that everybody obeyed it, that they did what was right, that they even, the Pharisees even built up extra laws to keep you from breaking God's law. I mean, it was like building a fence within a fence so that you didn't jump the original fence itself. They wanted to make sure everybody was holy, and so they, they were legalistic leaders that were just enforcing God's word in, in uncaring, rigorous, hard ways. And these scribes and these Pharisees, they were not friends of Jesus. In fact, they began to oppose Jesus and his ministry. They despised that people were following him. They despised that he himself, Jesus, wasn't practicing their laws and keeping them the way they thought they should, even more so that Jesus was claiming to be God. And so they were after him. They were seeking to bring him down and to discredit who he was and his ministry entirely. So Jesus is there in the temple, and he's teaching, and the scribes and the Pharisees show up, and verse 3 says that they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now notice here how the text doubles down on what she was doing, doubles down on her sin. It just wants us to be very aware that, that, that this woman is in trouble, that she's guilty, and that she's a sinner, and that these leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, they are so pleased that they caught her so that they could trip up Jesus and have him say something that would discredit him completely. They bring her to him, and they set her right in the middle. So there's Jesus teaching in the temple. He's seated, and they kind of circle her up around him, and they thrust her right into the middle. Everyone sees her. her she is out there and exposed in every way to everybody. And they start pointing the finger. This woman is wicked. She's been caught in the act. Her sin is gross and it's horrific and, and she's in trouble. She's been caught in the act. What are you going to do with her, Jesus? They, they make the accusation against her. They say she has been caught in the act. And then they bring out the Bible. And they say, well, now in the law, in the, in the Old Testament scriptures, Moses, who is their highest authority, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Like we, we're allowed to, we're given permission to pick up rocks, to throw them at her, to kill her. She should be executed on the spot, calling for capital punishment. They're after Jesus. Now, what they're saying isn't wrong. The Bible does permit and teach in the Old Testament scriptures that was for Israel in that day that those who committed these acts were to be killed. So when they brought this question to Jesus, they're saying, Jesus, are you going to follow the law of God? Are you going to do what Moses commanded? Or are you going to follow Rome's law? Rome, the empire that was over Israel at that time, their rule was that no one could be executed, no one could carry out capital punishment unless it was them. And so you're on the horns of a dilemma here with Jesus. 
Either go against God's law or go against the government law. Their hearts are revealed. The writer reveals it in verse 6. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. This is a complete trap to take down Jesus and his ministry. It's a tense situation, and you have to wonder what Jesus will say. And notice here how the, the focus of all of this isn't so much on the woman and her act, but it's on how Jesus will respond and what he will do. How does Jesus respond? What does he do with guilty sinners who deserve death? How does he treat them? Well, it's, it's interesting. The end of verse 6 says that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Jesus doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't answer them right out of the gate right away. He, he pauses and he begins with his finger to write on the ground. And this is one of the mysteries of this story. Like, what was Jesus writing on the ground? Was he just doodling or was he writing scriptures out? Uh, some have suggested that maybe he was writing uh, the sins of everyone around there at the same time. We, we don't have a clue. And I don't want to speculate other other than to suggest what Exodus 31 says. These guys are appealing to the law of Moses. And they're saying, Moses, our highest authority, he commands that you you kill the woman. You kill her. And Exodus 31.18 says that when God gave Moses the law, that God wrote it, the law was written with the finger of God. I think Jesus here in his writing, and this writer here telling us about Jesus writing in the dirt, is a way of Jesus saying, well, you've trusted Moses, who has a certain level of authority, but I am God. I am the one who writes the law. I am the one who declares what is true and just and merciful and good. He is the source of all truth and justice and mercy. They have this woman before him. They're pleading with him. What's his answer to their question? Will he condemn her as they have? Will he permit them to execute her in front of all? Verse 7 says they continued to ask him, the pressing on him. He's not quick in giving his answer. Finally, he stood up and he said to them something that's known. These are famous words. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He, just, he kind of looks at everybody in the eye and says, if you're without sin, you, you cast the first rock. You throw the first stone. If you're, if you're so holy and innocent and pure, by all means, go for it. What Jesus was doing in saying that was pointing out their own hypocrisy and their own judgmental hearts. And we could ask several questions about the situation. First of all, where was the man that she was committing adultery with? Why isn't he there in the midst of all of them just as well? Isn't he in trouble too? Seems like he gets off fairly clean. Why don't they follow the scriptures that say that if you see someone sinning, you should show compassion and speak up, hinder them? Furthermore, the scriptures, the Old Testament speak that say no charge should be admitted against anyone unless on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So where are these witnesses who saw this act and and were you know, accusing her of it. These leaders care nothing for this woman or her heart. They, they care nothing for her soul. They shame her publicly, and they look to discredit Jesus. 
And so with this statement, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her, Jesus pauses and then he again begins to bend down and write and wait for their response. The ball is now in their court. Imagine being in that temple. That woman is guilty. Everybody's chomping at the bit to execute her. And Jesus says, whoever is without sin, you be the first to throw the stone. And it's silent. And then you start to hear the thud of rocks on the ground. Verse eight, when they heard, or verse nine, when they heard it, when they heard Jesus' statement, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. They came to the realization that they were just as guilty as she was. There was no one who was perfectly innocent, who had no sin among them. And from the oldest, perhaps the wisest of them, to the youngest, most inexperienced and immature, they drop their stones and they walk away. And there's one person left. Jesus and the woman. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him, the sinless son of God, the one who had every right to throw the stones, the one who was perfect and pure in every way, stands before a poor, helpless Guilty sinner. As Jesus sees the woman, he stands up from his position of teaching and he, he asks her two questions. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one com- condemned you? Everybody's gone. Where'd everybody go? Are you not condemned? Her answer is, no one, Lord. No more accusers in front of her. No one more to condemn her. Just her and Jesus. And in looking her in the eye, he says what I think are some of the most precious words in the entire Bible. At the end of verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Here is is Jesus full of grace and mercy on display for a sinner caught in the act. And here is Jesus' heart for you in this very moment as well. The perfect sinless Son of God, the Savior, the Lord, He says, I don't condemn you either, although I have every right to. He knows the record. He knows the issues. He knows the sin. He knows her guilt. And He doesn't condemn her. Do you see Jesus' heart for sinners? He's not ready to drop the hammer on us in our guilt and our sin No, in fact, he came to save sinners, to rescue us. You you most likely know or are familiar with John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We say, yes, but do you know verse 17, the very following verse of that? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, what is Jesus' heart for you, a sinner, right now in this very moment? 
Not to condemn you, not to bury you under his foot, not to destroy you, but to rescue you by his grace. To, to extend his love and his forgiveness to you so that you might be new. Jesus' words to this woman are words to us that display and reveal that Jesus forgives sins. Jesus is safe enough for you to come to him with all of your guilt, all of your sin, and not to be destroyed, but to be forgiven, to be rescued, and to be made new. That one statement from Jesus says it all. And he wasn't just speaking to this woman who was caught in the act. This is something that's just historical in the past. It's, it's right here present now for us as well. Jesus is speaking his words, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. Those are words for anyone and everyone today who needs a second chance. If you need forgiveness, it's right there for you. Jesus is ready to forgive you. Is that you? I think it's a fair question for us in, in observing this story and reading it to ask ourselves, who am I in this story? To place ourselves there. Let me give you one hint. Okay, there's one person you are not in this story. You're not Jesus, okay? So let's just take him off the table. I'm not Jesus either. But who are you in this story? Are you the religious scribe, the Pharisee, the, perfect, the person who's got the Bible down pat, you know every inch of the law, and you want to see it enacted and carried out perfectly in every way. And everybody else who's a sinner, who's doing the wrong stuff and behaving the wrong way and thinking the wrong things and just full of wickedness and idolatry and sin, let God have it. Let him just destroy them. Is that, is that your heart towards sinners? Anger, legalism, justice? Or do you recognize yourself as the woman in the story? Caught red-handed. Guilty. Because I have good news for you. If you stand in the shoes of this poor, shamed, guilty, sinful woman, and you come to Jesus, full forgiveness, full pardon, full cleansing, because Jesus forgives sins. And if you say, I want that, well, let me show you then how to receive it. Three things, real quickly. First of all, forgiveness requires the awareness of our guilt. You, you have to come to Jesus with your sin. Come to him with your guilt. Everybody here in the story is guilty, okay, except for Christ. He's the only innocent, holy one here. Everybody else, the scribes, the Pharisees, the woman, all are sinners, all are guilty. Everyone's condemned, all caught in the act. And yet there's a contrast. She was caught in the act, and she's not denying it. She, she's not trying to show, well, okay, I maybe had one moment of indiscretion. Maybe there's this little, little sin, you know, like it was a bad deal, but not terrible. I mean, there's other worse people out there. I mean, have you met Pilate? I mean, that guy is horrible. Or Herod? He's killing folks left and right. But me, I was just, it, was, it was a fling. It was just a thing. No. She stands in her guilt. She carries her shame. She feels it and knows it. But the scribes and Pharisees, they're guilty as well. 
except they're not owning up on it. They know they haven't fulfilled the law. They haven't kept it perfectly. Their heart is motivated to trip up and trap Jesus in this moment. They're, try, they're trying to take down the Holy Son of God there. They're guilty as she is, if not worse. They're baiting a trap. And with their self-righteousness and with their pride and when they're, with their pretentious legalism, they are standing in judgment over her. Now you tell me who the guilty one is. Both sides are. But one is coming empty-handed, poor, distraught, broken, pleading for mercy. Well, the others with their legalism and their self-righteousness, all they can do is walk away. And who walks away forgiven in that moment? It's the woman. Sure, the scribes and the Pharisees drop their rocks and they, they walk away when they discern they're in no position to condemn her. But we we don't hear that any of them repented themselves. None of them acted in contrition. None of them sought reconciliation, either with Jesus or the woman that they brought to him. They may have known they were guilty, but there wasn't an awareness of their guilt that led them to seek forgiveness. They just persisted in their pride. And here's the point. When you're aware of your guilt and shame, act on it. Guilt is a means mechanism in our lives to take us to Christ, to, to bring us to Jesus. Why? Because he's hostile against us? Because he wants to see us doomed? No, because he wants to heal us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to rescue us. I have this really annoying thing that happens in my, in my car, and yet it's one of the best things. Every 5,000 miles, my dashboard and my vehicle lights up yellow and it tells me, it pops up a message and says, it's time for you to service uh, your car. It's time to take it into the dealership and get the oil change and make sure everything is finely tuned and working well. My car will even count down. Like if I switch through the settings, it'll even tell me how close I am to the, hitting that 5,000-mile mark. And it's annoying. I hate it when it pops up. I, I just don't like it there. I want to ignore it. And it will pop up in such a way that it will begin to tell me if I go over those 5,000 miles, how many miles over those 5,000 I have gone. It's just a persistent annoyance to tell me, service your car, take care of the oil. And yet, it's a good thing for me. It, it, it prompts me to get the service that I need. Guilt acts in that way. It, it flares up the message in our hearts and our lives and saying, you're wrong. You're, you're opposed to God. You need help. And if you know you're guilty, then you can get real forgiveness. So when you go, when you feel your guilt, go to Christ with your sin. Don't be like our first parents and hide in the bushes. Acknowledge your sin. I love how David reminds us in Psalm 32. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what happened? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. If you're aware of your guilt and shame and you take it to God, he forgives it. He cleanses us. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you to the woman. And in saying that, he shows us the second thing about forgiveness that we need to embrace. And that is that forgiveness removes all condemnation. Jesus wipes the slate clean. He removes the judgment 
the condemnation against her. His forgiveness is total and complete. He says, I don't condemn you. I don't hold this against you. If you're really aware of your sin, if you're like this woman caught red-handed in the act, and you feel the shame that's on your back, and you take it to Jesus, good news, friend, God holds nothing against you again. How can Jesus say this to this woman? She rightly deserved death. She deserved condemnation. And Jesus can say to her, neither do I condemn you. Because he went before her and took her condemnation on himself and died in her place. There was still a death, but it wasn't her death. It was Jesus' death for her. And he has stood in our place as well and died in our place for our sins. He satisfied justice and answered for our sins so that we would not be condemned before God. He did this by going to the cross for us. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, humbled himself, became a human being. As Paul says in Philippians 2, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on that cross, a great exchange happened. All our sin was placed on him, transferred to him, and all of his righteousness credited and accounted to those who believe in him. As he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Our sin was erased. So if you've trusted in Christ, God's not holding back on you. There's peace. Your guilt is removed. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now, today, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You could believe the good news. God is not hostile against you if you trusted Christ. You're forgiven and cleansed, made right before him. Some of us, I think, have this idea that, that one day we're going to stand before God and he's going to air out all of our dirty laundry. All of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your shame, that God is going to act like these scribes and Pharisees and he's going to haul you up into the middle of the courts of heaven and say, hey, everybody, I got a big book. Actually, it's a multi-volumed book, okay? Sit down for a while because it's going to take some time. But I want to tell you everything dirty this person did. And then somehow or another, God's just going to lay it all out there. He's got his accountant angels who have been watching you like Big Brother, recording every wrong thought and action and attitude, motive, all of it. And he's going to bring you out, share all your sin, and he's going to bring out Jesus. He's going to point to the cross, and like the grumpy uncle in uh, Home Alone, he's going to say, look what you did to my son, you little jerk. And he's going to be grumpy and annoyed with you for the rest of eternity. But he'll let you live in heaven. You may feel like God is just going to lay it all out there and make sure that he knows, that you know, that he knows how bad you are. Friends, that's not forgiveness. Let me remind you of who God is. Micah 7. Who is a God like you, the scripture says? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over transgression. He doesn't retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He'll make our sins dirt. You, God, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Friends, if your sins are in the depths of the sea because of the work of Jesus Christ, you can be assured that God isn't going to take a fishing trip to bring them up again. 
They're gone, erased, forgiven, cleansed. The Father's not bearing a grudge against you. There is no condemnation. Nothing shall separate you from his love. Jesus' words to this woman are his words to you, broken sinner. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. He may not condemn you, though, but he does change you. And this is the last thing that Jesus says to sinners like you and me who are in need. Forgiveness renews a dead life. Here's what God's forgiveness does for us. Notice what he says, the last thing he says to this woman. And from now on, sin no more. From this point forward, the future trajectory of your life, no more sin. Like, walk in holiness. Now, notice here, Jesus is not saying, hey, kid, go be perfect. Like, never, ever do anything wrong ever again. Don't mess it up. You got one shot, and if you mess it up, no more. He's, he's pointing her towards a new trajectory of life, a change in life, a new way of living. That's what forgiveness does and empowers. Where, where things are broken and destroyed and dead, forgiveness, God's forgiveness brings life, and it brings transformation. It brings freedom. Jesus is challenging this woman for the rest of her life to live and walk in a way under his forgiveness. Do you remember what Jesus did for you is effectively what he's saying? Then go live a new way for him as your king and as your Lord. She was a dead woman walking, as it were. The death sentence hanging over her. But Jesus forgave her and gave her life again. There's only a new life in front of her. Forgiveness isn't a blank check to go out and live however you'd like and keep sinning because God forgave me. That's what we call cheap grace. Forgiveness is the new start that's displayed in a new life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, embracing his forgiveness, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I often think about the story in Les Mis, Victor Hugo's a novel, and you remember the productions that have been around that, about how forgiveness changes a life. You remember the, the character Jean Valjean? At the beginning of the story, we meet him, and he's a thief. He's stolen to provide for his family, but he's stolen nonetheless, and his thieving gets him in trouble a lot. Eventually, he works off his, his uh, sentence, and he goes out into the world again, freed from prison, but he stays the old person that he was, still a thief. And he eventually steals from the wrong person, he ends up in a poor, desperate place and is in the house of a, a local priest who has shown him kindness and hospitality at the deepest moment of need. And in that kindness and hospitality, he steals. Again, he's a thief. It runs thick through his blood. And he makes a run for it, only to be caught by the authorities. And they bring him back to the priest to verify his crime. They want judgment down over him. And it's the, the turning point of the story. There in the home of the priest, where he could be sent back to prison, maybe even to the death sentence, the priest shows mercy and forgives him. Even deeper, he blesses him. And he gives him more and more of the silver and the goodness of the house. He, he makes him a wealthy man. And he sends him away. And he, similar to what Jesus says, from now on, sin no more. And what's the result? Jean Valjean's life has changed. His heart has changed. He, he turs away from his wicked life, his old life, 
and he becomes a new man of mercy and compassion. He is a forgiven man who lives a forgiven life. Friends, when you're forgiven by Christ, when you see what Jesus has done for you, and you embrace that through faith, he creates a new life within you. So Jesus' words to this woman, neither do I commend you or condemn you, go, and from now on, sin no more, are his words for us of, hey, if you've been forgiven by Jesus, there's a new way to walk, there's a new life to live, to please God, to enjoy him, to glorify him in every way. This is what Christ calls us to do. His forgiveness empowers us towards. So let me ask us this. Have you been forgiven of your sin? Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? It's there. Jesus offers to anyone who will acknowledge their guilt and anyone who will come to him for forgiveness. He, he makes itself, himself available. He says, yes, I am the one who has forgiven you. And I've done so by what I've done on the cross for you. Do you believe that? Have you taken your sin to Christ? Taken your, your wickedness? Taken your rebellion? Taken your, your hatred of God and others? And said, I'm guilty. And I deserve death. And allow Jesus to speak his grace over you, saying, here you are, friend. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. Jesus forgives sins. If you have not embraced his forgiveness, if you have not come to him with your guilt and shame and sin, let me encourage you today to do that. He is not opposed to you. He is not ready to judge you and to bring terror against you. He is ready to bring all of his love and mercy to bear on your life because he has died in your place for you. He's been raised to life again for you. So take your sin to him today. Confess to him. Draw near to him and receive his grace for you are forgiven Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.